Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Gerald Harris, and I am chair of the club's Technology and Society member-led forum and your host for today. The focus of the Technology and Society forum is to expose members and attendees to current and emerging developments in the science and technology field and in the process, generate thinking and ideas about the use and commercialization of technology and creating a better world for all. We welcome your participation in the club's uh, activities. We welcome any members. We'll be delighted to have you in, enjoy any of our future programming. Our contact information can be found at the club's website. On behalf of the club, I would like to thank the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for their support that they are providing for this program and the club's digital communications at this time. And now I will introduce today's uh, speaker. Dr. Mary Frances Winters is founder and CEO of the Winters Group, a 36-year-old global organization focused on development and diversity, equity, and inclusion, one of the leading consulting firms in this area. She truly believes that diversity and inclusion is her work and passion and calling. Dubbed a thought leader in the field for the past three decades, she has impacted hundreds of organizations and thousands of individuals with her thought-provoking message and her approach to diversity and inclusion. Dr. Winters is a master strategist with experience in strategic planning, change management, diversity, organization development, training, and facilitation. She's also an expert in systems thinking, and qualitative and quantitative research methods. She has extensive experience in working with senior leadership teams to drive organizational change. She is a graduate of the University of Rochester with an undergraduate degree in English and, and psychology and a master's degree in business administration from the William E. Simon Executive Development Program. She received an honorary doctorate from Roberts Wesleyan College. With that, welcome Dr. Winner. Thank you so much for having me. No, it's my pleasure. I had so much fun uh, reading your book, and it's so thorough and so well put together. I just want to thank you for collapsing so much beautiful information into a book. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> thank you for your kind words. I appreciate oh, it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So uh, what I want to do is just give you a space to uh, kind of kick us off on the core ideas of the book, things that you think you could just sort of anchor us in this whole concept of, of Black fatigue and how it really affects us in terms of our mind, body, and spirit. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I started to think about the book actually um, a couple of years ago, and the publisher um, you know, was really excited about the book, and we decided actually to um, accelerate the publication of the book as a result of what we've been seeing going on uh, with racial tensions and racial injustice um, being sort of highlighted again in our society over the past few few years. I was um, in my work, in my consulting work at the Winters Group, um, I often talk with actually millennials. I'm a baby boomer, but I actually um, talk with, because millennials now are the most, uh, are the largest group in the workforce. They were saying things like, we're fatigued, we're, we're exhausted. So we're exhausted from having to navigate um, these corporate spaces that that continue to not be inclusive, to continue to not provide a sense of belonging um, and equity for us. And I would tease and I'd say, well, you know, you're only 30 years old. How are you fatigued 
they would, <laughs> and they they would look at me with sort of that side eye, like I know that I'm fatigued. So I, I just it really it, you know, Gerald, it really got me thinking about hmm, you know, this generation is thinking about this a little bit differently because I you know I came up in the heyday of the civil rights movement, and I think that we thought that it was our role to just continue to keep the work going, keep the work going. And this generation is saying, it's not my responsibility to teach white people what it's like to um, live and, and work in, uh, in um, cultures and, and in society that is not really still equitable. They need to do their own work and I'm gonna rest. And, and I say that tongue in cheek, I don't mean, mean it that way, but I do mean that I think this generation is prioritizing their well-being because of the extra tax, the emotional toll that it takes to both um, just try to, to live in live life, and that's not always easy for, for people, uh, but then try to live life uh, as a, a member of a stigmatized group, that's just much more, and it is fatiguing. Yeah. You know, in your, your book, you talk about Black fatigue affecting you all the way from when you were a child. I remember you have a story about going to a store. So that was a kind of a heart space uh, definition of that to me that really hit me. So can you talk about the kind of the, the emotional impact of, of, of having this kind of trauma or bother or whatever you want to call it? Yeah. You know, so my black fatigue actually started when I was five years old in kindergarten. Um, there was a little kindergarten boy and, and you know, you can uh, know that <laughs> just based on my history that I'm, it's been a long time since I've been in kindergarten remember this as if it were yesterday. And I think that's what, what I want to get across in the book, the lasting and enduring impact of the experiences that we have. So this little boy called me the N-word. And I didn't really know what it meant because my parents, you know, didn't use that kind of language in the house. But when I went home and told them about it and they told me what, what it meant, it took me from being this carefree little kid at five years old thinking, you know, everything's wonderful and the world is my oyster to being cautious because somebody might not like me because of the color of my skin. So think about how a five-year-old has to process that. You know, a five-year-old doesn't have a lot of years and a lot of, don't know, don't know psychology at five years old, don't know sociology at five years old, don't even know really what racism is at five years old. But it changed my life forever because I became more cautious thinking that, hmm, is that person looking at me because I'm black and they may not like me? Um, so yeah, so I, I think the experiences, you know, can be um, can be traumatic, um, you know, as, as in the, you know, every single day as an adult, you know, going into a store. Um, I can remember. I don't even know if I told this story in the book, but going into a store and, and, and waiting, you know, be, being in line and waiting, and you know, being ignored. And it, I lived at the time in Rochester, New York. It was a cold winter day. I had on this big raccoon coat and this big raccoon hat. And uh, I said, excuse me, I, I think I was before that person. And the, the w waiter said, oh, I, I didn't see you. How can you not see me? <laughs> <laughs> All wrapped up. <laughs> you know, so, so right, you're always, yeah. right. Yeah. It's always, you're always wondering, you know, um, is it, you know, is it race? You know, uh, I had the hair issue in, um, in the corporate world. I had a colleague come in one day and say, I was wearing a very short Afro at the time. Uh, and this was in the mid seventies. And he said, um, came into me and he said, out of the blue, not good morning. We weren't even in a conversation. He just popped into my office 
And he said, will your hair grow? And I said, well, yes, it will. And he said, well, you ought to let it. Oh, oh okay. So that was in 1975. And one of the chapters in the book is Then Is Now. And I hear so many stories um, from Black women today about the hair, um, whether I feel comfortable wearing my hair in the natural state. Um, somebody's going to ask me if they can touch my hair. Um, I'm going on a job interview. Um, should I straighten my hair? And so, you know, the, the issues of living and the stress of being concerned about whether or not your race is going to be a factor huh? today. Yeah, yeah. You know, you do a, a beautiful job in the book of touching on various points in history um, in the book. You went all the way back to the, to the Niagara movement and the forming of the NAACP and, you know, all kinds of things. So if, are there any sort of just historical touch points you would like to just mention to people that let them know this isn't new, you know what I mean? been around for a while. Oh, yes. And so we can go back to, um, I want to talk about the 15th Amendment, because the 15th Amendment guaranteed voting uh, rights to Blacks, well, Black men at the time, because women, you know, still couldn't vote. And then, you know, we had to have the 19th, and, and then there were some other acts in between, but let's just fast forward to 1965. The 1965 Voting Rights Act had to be enacted because the 15th Amendment wasn't being followed. And so that said um, that uh, because there were states, particularly southern states, that were where there was widespread voter suppression, said that the federal government could intervene in those states. And then in 2013, I believe it was, the Supreme Court overruled that particular provision of the, the 1965 um, Voting Rights Act. So now we have the 2020 Voting Rights Act, which um, John Lewis was um, very instrumental in, as, as, as we all know, he sadly passed away um, recently. So, the, the, so my one chapter in the book called Then Is Now really points out that um, we've had all of these types of um, inequities and we've had laws that were supposed to level the playing field and create equality, but they haven't worked. And we know that voter suppression is rampant today. We see it in all sorts of ways. I don't want to go into, you know, all of the, the recent ways, but we, we know that it's there. Um, and, and so we haven't re achieved that equity, and that's fatiguing. It's fatiguing to have to continue to struggle and fight for a right that was guaranteed by the Constitution. And so today we're out there, you know, encouraging everybody to vote. We're trying to uh, not be undermined by some of the things that are going on in terms of, you know, um, taking sorting machines out of post off post offices and um, taping up uh, um, uh, taping up mailboxes and you know those kinds of things which which absolutely disproportionately impact um, black people. So these things are still happening. I'm going to give you one more example. Brown Board of Education, 1954, landmark legislation that said it is unconstitutional in public education. To, to have segregated public uh, public schools. Well, there was a headline in the New York Times last year that said, still segregated, still unequal. Our schools are more segregated today than they were in 1954. And so when we think about why are there protests? What, what, and, and I just was, just this morning, I was with a board, a board of a not-for-profit organization. I won't say who they are. Board members were so shocked that, Racism is still here. They were shocked and awakened 
by the most recent protests, by the most recent Black Lives Matter protests all around, not only all around the country, but all around the world. And these board members who, and the board is all about equity and justice, but they were surprised that racism is still such an issue in our society. Yeah, yeah. You know, can you combine a couple of things as, you know, you talk about, you know, we have to educate our, you know, white colleagues, but then this whole concept of of white fragility. So even if I try to educate you, I got to say it in certain ways and not hurt your feelings and not call you racist. So can you, you know, that's the hot topic. And I like the way you kind of touch on it in your book. So can you talk talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think that, um, I actually um, think that white fragility is, you know, yet another excuse because I really think it really is, um, white fragility is really white power uh, because you have, um, you can be fr- you can be fragile and use that fragility in a as power to not have the conversation to shut down the conversation. Um, so I think that we um, you know and and that book is and it's a wonderful book. Um, I when I read that book, actually that book really sparked my was a part of sparking my interest to write Black Fatigue because I said because of white fragility we're fatigued Black people are fatigued as a result of fragility because we can't talk, we can't talk about it we try to talk about it that's stressful uh, and then you know the conversation gets uh, gets shut down but I do think that that the fragility um, needs to be really framed as what it is it's it's power because think about it um, I was doing some work with a university um, ac- actually um, a group of women African American women and white women at the university and in talking with them I talk about this um, situation in the book as well, the Black women said, you know, let us try crying. You know, part of what Robin DiAngelo talks about in, in White Fragility is that in a session where you're talking about race, white women in particular might start to cry, and then the attention gets, you know, diverted to that person and away from the topic at hand. Uh, but this Black woman, these Black women said, let us cry. We can't cry. You know, if we, <laughs> because because if we cry, it, it's going to be a totally different, it's going to, there's going to be a totally different response. Uh, and so I think it's used more as, as power. And then we think about, uh, the, uh, and I write about this in the book as well, the Karen meme, you know, that's out there, that the Karens go around and... Yeah, we have some in the Bay Area, I assure you. Oh, you have a few. <laughs> in Oakland. <laughs> well, you can't barbecue in the park, you know. That kind of yeah, you can't barbecue in the park. Um, yeah. or and there was one in Massachusetts where this couple, and I think they were both lawyers, they were building a deck on the back of their house. And um, the woman comes up and says, do you have a permit to build a deck on the back of your house? I would never, ever, ever consider asking somebody if they had a permit to do something in their own yard. What, who, wh- why is it my right to, why am I entitled to have that power to be able to ask that question? But we see it over and over Again, so I, I really think when we think about, you know, why we're so fatigued, it is because of the power that the, the that dominant groups have, and and in our society, white people are in the dominant group that they have to be able to set the rules, um, and change the rules, and uh, make those who are not in the dominant group, um, you know, quote abide by those rules, and if we don't, we suffer the you know the the, the consequences, and and it's fatiguing. <laughs> it's fatiguing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, I really enjoyed you also laying out in the book. And I thought, God, this book is so well researched. It's like, you know, everything you want to know is right here. I've looked at all the footnotes. This is great, right? Thank you so much. But, I appreciate oh, yeah. that. But I thought about the physical damage it does to the body, right? And then how that can be passed on generation to generation. We talked about, you know, the black diet and, and, and diabetes and heart stuff. But you touched on some of that. So can you, you know, give us a little touch on that, the physical illness that we get out of it? Yes, and I think, um, you know, as, as Black people, we, na- we may not even know, that, know to connect our physical ailments to racism. So there have been several recent studies that have been done in the past few years that show that the stress, the extra stress that racism uh, creates, even from childhood, um, does something to our cellular system. Now, I, I'm not a physician. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to go very far. Uh, yeah, but you got a good link in the book, though. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You read, yeah. read the book. <laughs> yeah, you got a couple right. of good links in there. Yes, yeah. M- many, many of the people who are listening may, may be in that, that field, but suffice it to say, and I think this makes sense intuitively, even for lay people, that the accumulation of stress does something physically to our bodies that gets into our cellular system. And then that gets passed down generation to generation. It's a field called epigenetics. Um, and um, I actually um, just interviewed for a podcast that I'm doing around the book, uh, Dr. Shannon Sullivan, who is the chair of the philosophy department at UNC Charlotte. She has written about epigenetics and how it actually plays out because black women, even um, middle-class black women who have access to quality care, still they're still twice as likely um, to die in childbirth as, as poor white women. And they believe that it is because of this intergenerational, the impact of the intergenerational stress. And so, so many municipalities, well, I don't know about many, but a number of municipalities have actually declared racism as a public health crisis. Yeah, yeah. I remember some years ago, I was doing some work on the metabolic syndrome here in San Francisco with a, a health-related agency. And it was amazing that we could tie, you know, the stress to some of these behaviors. And then the behaviors led to the, the health effects. And we go, oh, wow, you know. And so we were doing all kinds of things in terms of changing people's diets and encouraging exercise and all these all these positive things. But what I learned about reading on your book is even if we do all of that, right, it's still not enough to overcome the heavy impact, emotional, physical impact. So, you know, it can help, but it doesn't exactly cure it. Exactly. It can mitigate it. It can help, but it's not going to, it's not going to cure it. And I think, you know, as Black people throughout the generations, we have found, you know, solace in, in our spiritual journey, our faith walk. And I talk about this in the book as well. Black people are much more likely to say, that they believe in God, much more likely to um, have um, a, a strong connection um, to their faith. And I think that this is a, a way, this is one way of coping with and dealing with the uh, effects of racism. You know, the belief in that, belief in that higher power, um, staying positive. Last night I did a, a session for a church that I used to go to when I lived in Maryland. Um, it's a unity, uh, unity church. And I was talking about black fatigue and I said, well, I, I know for for people who are unity folks, got to be po- got to be positive because I mean that that's just the that's that's the message, right? It's it's a, it's about positivity. It's about affirmations, and we 
more of that with the with healing and healing cir- healing circles that um, organizations are developing. You know, we know that um, historically um, black men have not sought um, you know mental health treatment, but that's changing as well. I talk in the book about barbershop therapy, where there are efforts to actually train um, barbers. Um, you know, not to be clinicians, you know, specifically, but in, to be able to support um, conversations because mm-hmm. skill listening, yeah, yeah, black men feel that they're more, uh, yeah, that they'll be listened to, you know, with, the, with their barbers. So they call it, you know, barbershop therapy. So I think that we're recognizing much more the impact that racism has on our physical uh, and mental health. Yeah, yeah. So I want to segue a little bit into the, the mental health aspect of it. And I, I discovered this concept some years ago called post-traumatic slave syndrome, right? And I scratched my head and I read a couple of books and I talked to an author about it. But it, it's, as I understand it, you can say more about it, but it's a way that you kind of internalize this racist behavior in terms of how you think about yourself and maybe even people, other Black people around you in a kind of a negative downward spiral. So can you talk about that, that, that impact in terms of how it affects it psychologically? Yes, yes. And I, I was um, inspired by Dr. Joy DeGraw's book um, of the same name, of Post-Traumatic um, Slave Syndrome. Um, and it, it is exactly that, um, how we internalize um, the negative stereotypes about, um, you know, about, about our group. Um, and so when we see things like um, you know, black-on-black crime, you know, I, I don't, I, I have self-hate. And so somebody who looks like me, I'm going to hate as well. But, but we also know that the black on black crime is no worse than, I mean, when I say no worse, it's it, you know, white on white crime happens at, at the same um, rate because of proximity. You know, you, there's more black on because black people live, you know, um, in proximity. People are always talking about black on black crime, but never talk about white on white crime. So I want to make that, but, but I also want to make the point that we internalize um, the, this, this, this post-traumatic slave syndrome is this internalization of this, this the slave um, mentality. Um, you know, there's, in Joy DeGraw's book, she, she speaks to, um, so somebody gets promoted um, in the organization, the black person gets promoted um, over you. And then you, you say, well, gee, you know, um, I, I must be even, you know, at the bottom, even worse, at the bottom, bottom of the bucket because that person, um, you know, got promoted um, and I don't think, you know, I'm not sure about their qualifications. And so I didn't get promoted, you know, and so it's this syndrome of, of sort of seeing yourself as, um, you know, as not as good as, and it, and it can be very unconscious sometimes, you know, we talk about it from the perspective also of, um, internalized oppression or internalized racism and it's real. And I don't think that we, um, highlighted enough, Dr. Um, Kenneth Clark and Dr. Mamie Clark in the 40s did the black doll experiment uh, where they showed black children a black doll and white doll and asked them which doll was the better doll, which doll was the smarter doll, which doll was the prettier doll. And invariably, black children, preschool children, picked the white doll. And they repeated that experiment through the decades, and the result is still the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I grew up in an environment where there was a lot of um, physical abuse children under the uh, so-called Christian, you know, if you don't uh, spoil the rod, you, you know. Yeah. And, spare the uh, child, spo- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Spare and the rod, spoil the child, yeah. Yeah, and to me, I thought, you know, some of this seems like cruelty, you know, and I thought it was, when I first read about post-traumatic slave syndrome, I thought, well, 
you know, the, the beating that these kids have taken reminds me of the beating that the slaves took. And so is there some, and I know in the Jewish community, uh, you know, people whose parents were in the Holocaust have had some, some negative loops there. So I think this whole uh, area in terms of the African-American community, I'm so glad you touched on. I think it'll be a place that we'll have a lot of, you know, further discussion and debate about, you know, it's really mm-hmm. very important. Yeah, and, and so um, I w- one of the things that um, my, my son, who uh, Dr. Joseph Winters, who is a professor at Duke University in, in religious studies, and he also studies critical race theory. And as I was writing the book and I was consulting with him, he said, you know, it's, it's, not, um, it's not an excuse for things like, um, you know, domestic violence, which is um, higher in black communities, but it's an explanation. And so if we just look at the uh, outcome without looking at the cause, uh, this is where all this negative um, press and negative information comes about, about black people. Oh, you know, black people are more likely to do this and they're more likely to do that. That's the outcome, but we don't get at the root. And I think this most recent, um, these most recent protests are waking people up to the need to really address systemic racism and not just look at programs that will address the uh, the symptoms, you know, without dr- addressing the root cause. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you, let's go back to this thing about spirituality, because I want to touch base on that. Uh, just as an African-American man, I can tell you that um, watching the video of George Floyd's murder, um, it tore me up. And I need to go back to some spiritual resources. Can you touch base on that a little bit in terms of what we need to do there and how it makes a difference? Yeah, I think um, really, you know, coming together, um, community, finding communal opportunities to just be, um, communal opportunities to cry, um, opportunities to just share our, our shared our shared feelings of rage, our shared feelings of, of sadness. Many black people, you know, work in what we call white spaces. And no matter how hard many white people may try, they just really can't understand what it does to see somebody who looks like you um, treated as an animal, treated as less than human. Uh, it it just tears us up to the to the core, and we sometimes just feel so helpless. That so that one of the things is coming together, you know, um, and places for us to do that healing, places for us to um, let the let that rage just be rage, and not have somebody tell you to calm down, or not have somebody to you know tell you to sit down, or you know the rage is real. And if we don't deal with the rage, if we don't let that rage be real, um, we're going to suffer for it later because we hold it in, and that's where the that's where the stress comes from. So, so my my advice is, you know, we're not going to change systemic racism, we're not going to change white supremacy culture, you know, today or tomorrow, and so we have to find those resources and those places. You know, um, one of the things I talk about um, in the book is um, the Black Girl Magic you know, movement. Uh, and it's a movement to uplift black women and girls when, when good things happen. 
so that it's not always about the, the bad things. And so black girls are magic. Um, black girls can do every, anything. And then, you know, we talk more generally about black joy uh, rather than talking about black sorrow. And so the title of my book um, received some, a little bit of criticism because, well, well, it's, you know, you're, you're talking about, um, you, you know, you're talking about black fatigue. We should be talking more positively about, um, but I wanted to be, I wanted it to be real. I wanted it to be realistic. And I think that um, it's just, it's just really hard, Gerald. I, I don't have the, all of the answers, but I do know that coming together as a community, uh, whether that be through your faith walk, whether that be through community, communities that are doing healing circles, um, you know, online communities, um, participated in an online community around anti-racism. And it was um, really very good in terms of helping people to be okay. You know, even, you know, messages that we get, you know, you need to be a strong black woman. Well, you know, why do you need to be a strong black woman? Why can't I just be, right? Why, why can't I just be? Or you're an angry black woman. Well, maybe I, maybe, maybe I am angry and, and okay, I'm going to be angry. And so, so that, so this is the double whammy because I'm angry and now somebody's telling me that I shouldn't be angry. And so that's, that, you know, puts a double sort of, um, yeah. So it's, it's really hard. Yeah. 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 You know, I also want to touch a little bit on, on Brianna, you know, Taylor, her, her situation, because it reminds me also of the young man in, in Houston who was at home and a police officer thought she was in her apartment and came in and shot him. And then this woman's in her bed and someone. So the fact that you can't even be at home, uh, you're not safe there. Well, and that's why I think about when I think about um, when they talk about white fragility, I think about black fragility. I mean, who's really fragile? <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. what, white people are fragile because, oh, they just don't want to talk about it. But they're, but they're not fragile because they're not safe. We're vulnerable. Because we're not we're not safe. You know, I worry about, um, you know, I, I have a black son. He's a grown, grown married man. Um, and he went to, you know, Harvard, Duke and Princeton. But he's still a black man um, who might be targeted and he has been just because he's a just because he's a black man and shouldn't matter that he went to harvard duke, duke or princeton that shouldn't matter but it matters to white people right they would probably oh you know so it it is um it um it is just living and i talk about this in the book just living while black and not knowing so you know even going on vacation and wondering if um this is a place that you will be accepted and that you can go i mean that's really um you know, that, that's really difficult as well. I think like there's some music. I'm not sure. Maybe it's for me. It's not music for me, but oh, there it is. Okay, great. Um, you know, you, you mentioned and you, you touched a little bit a lot on, on you, you draw from James Baldwin in your book, which I really enjoy. Um, and the point you make is that systemic racism is not a problem that black people can, can fix. It, it really is fixed on, on, the, on the other side, right? And so can you, can you talk about that? Because I want to, you know, move us into the future of some solutions here, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't make, you know, systemic racism go away. I can't change the economic system. It takes other people to be involved in that. Yes. And so um, I do apologize if uh, we're hearing something because um, 
it is my lawn being mowed. (laughs) I had no idea that my lawn would be mowed at this time uh, because I usually know when they come, but it should be, uh, it should go away very soon. Uh, So yes, um, you know, I think we've approached racism as um, if we can just fix black people. Um, and nobody would admit that that's how it's been approached, but that really is how it's been approached. You know, we approach, you know, so black people live in poverty, and so let's just get them out of um, poverty. Well, we know that even when you're not in poverty, uh, racism still looms, you know, looms large. Um, so the, 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 the mentality has been more of the white savior, right? We're going to come in and we're going to save. Um, and, the, and it has been, and you have to do it our way. We're going to save you. And here's the way that you do it. So not respecting cultural norms or cultural values, uh, but really saying you have to assimilate, you have to, you have to change and you know, be, be more like white people. Now, people listening to this say, oh, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. You know, but if you really look at the history of many of the programs, um, it is, we, you know, we have structures and these structures are based on white supremacy um, culture. And we're saying black people fit in to these structures. And so what we have to do um, is we have to turn that around um, to be able to value and respect that there are different ways of being um, that are just as valid as the um, dominant group, the Eurocentric white supremacy way of doing things are other ways in which cultures have, um, have thrived. You know, when we were brought from, you know, from and, you know, obviously many generations ago, but the African traditions um, that we were, you know, told to, that we were not allowed, you know, to bring, but now some, many of those are, are, are coming back. So some of the healing circles are using uh, African um, methods you know, for, for healing. Yeah. Well, I see it's a, it's a more community centric than individually. Uh, exactly. Folks. Yeah. So the United States has been dubbed as the most individualistic society um, in, in, on the planet. It's all about me. It's all about me. And we see that right now, even with the pandemic, with the people who are resisting wearing masks and saying, you know, it's my, it's my right. Um, whereas other cultures are concerned about others you know, that you may um, spread the disease to someone else, being, being more worried about, about the collective than being worried about the individualistic. And so, yes, we as a people um, from Africa are much more collectivist, as are, you know, Native Americans, as are people from the Asian con- continent, more, more collectivist driven. And I think that that, um, the individualistic, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, kind of uh, uh, mentality uh, has been very uh, detrimental. This idea that we're a meritocracy um, has been very detrimental because we are not a a meritocracy. People do not uh, succeed based on merit. They succeed um, based on privilege and based on who they know. The scandals in the, the, that we just saw with the, um, the university where the um, celebrity parents were were paying the kids. The parents were paying to get the kids into, into school. Right. I mean, that's just plain old privilege that has nothing to do with meritocracy, but yet people will, uh, will bash uh, affirmative action and say that affirmative action is preferential treatment. Well, society is based on preferential treatment, and and it's it's uh, really about equity and leveling the playing field. And people have a, a lot of people have a big problem with the with the whole idea of equity, giving people what they need and deserve versus giving everybody the same. We see that in in schools. 
schools, public education that, that uh, educates black and brown children, woefully underfunded. And one of the reasons that the, it's woefully underfunded is because they use the, you know, the tax base in that community to uh, allocate um, monetary resources. And so we know that the tax base in black and brown communities is lower because housing values are lower and all of those things. And that's, that's how the systemic racism you know, perpetuates. So rather than giving those schools what they need, they give those schools the same allocation as they would give another school. So that therein lies you know, a huge issue uh, relative to uh, our educational systems. Yeah. You know, I, I underlined something in your book last night that I thought was really perceptive, uh, which, I, and I, you can say it better than I did, but the thing about diversity training in an organization makes you, the individual, <laughs> the problem, and you need to solve the problem by you becoming better. But the whole organization, the whole system <laughs> never gets looked at. So you're just trying to fix the thing by turning this little dial on the individual, but wait a minute, what about the rest of it? And I thought, ah, so I, I thought, you, you know, that was just brilliant on your part to really point this out. Yeah. Can you hear me? I can, but the, yeah. uh, the lawnmower was going right by the window. At that oh, moment. good. Okay. Yeah. I yeah, wanted yeah. To, so I had you on mute. I do, I do apologize. Oh, no Best, problem. No problem. Less late plans. Yes. And so, um, Yes, we have been focused on the individual, and we know that individuals do make up cultures, and it is important to get a critical mass of individuals who understand the need to, to focus on systems. However, there's um, not a big incentive to change systems that work for you, and so the systems that work for the dominant group, um, you know, people may, people really want to change, but not so much. You know, they want to change uh, just enough so that we don't have protests, you know, so that people will uh, just, you know, sort of go along with um, what the um, what the status quo has been, because the systems work for white people. And so I've always had a problem with power and privilege training when we do um, training on um, power and privilege and we teach white people about dominant group power and privilege. And uh, so if I have the power and privilege, why would I want to give it up? <laughs> right. I mean, that was my thought about the whole COVID-19. Uh, I thought, well, wait a minute, let me get this straight. All these black, poor, and old people are dying, and the rich white people are not. Isn't that what the system was designed to do? I mean, so why would you ever change that if, if you're not the ones who's being impacted? I, I think that's maybe an overstatement, but I definitely saw it that way. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think altruism is not, is not dead. And I think that people do care, but they only care to a point like this board that I was talking to this morning. So the board chair happens to be a white woman. She was talking about her conversation first started about how much she cared. And then she morphed to the conversation of, however, she said, you know, black people seem to be so angry and I don't know how I can deal with that the anger. We have to find a way to have the conversations without the anger, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So again, it's it's we can talk about it as long as we can talk about it the way I want to talk about it, and that gets into a concept known as respectability, you know, politics. You know, if they would only pull up their pants, and um, if they would only learn the king's English, and uh, you know, be, be respectable, um, then we could then we could have this conversation. Then everything yeah. would be okay. Yeah. You know, you know that's you, um, you you end the book with a lot of which I thought was good, a lot of solutions. Right. 
Uh, you know, what are we supposed to do? And I thought, this is great. You got a whole chapter. <laughs> I thought, oh, man. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as you know, I'm sort of a, I'm a futurist in, in what I do. So I'm always kind of leaning forward in terms of where I want things to go. But if you want to highlight a couple of those, like, hey, guys, you can do these things here right. that will yeah. make this better. I think that'd be a great place. Yeah. So I, I really think, and this is very controversial, but I really think that we have to address reparations. We, you know, some people call slavery the original sin. And I think that we have to address it. You know, the United States has never really officially apologized for, for slavery. And while that's symbolic, I think it means a great deal to acknowledge. And you know, that's what happened in South Africa, you know, when um, apartheid was ended. You know, there was a, 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 a truth and reconciliation. You know, the truth is that this is wrong. <laughs> And we're going to recognize, you know, and so we've never done that in the United States. I think that that is really um, very important. And then I think some type of reparations for descendants of slaves is, is, is necessary. Now, will those reparations, I don't think they could ever be enough to level the, the playing field financially. However, I think it would do a whole lot to change the dynamic because the dynamic would then be we have um, acknowledged the wrong and at least we've done something. I think there's still an, an arrogance about, well, you know, slavery is over and it's done. And, you know, you've had plenty of time to make it up and you've had plenty of time to get things, you know, to, to, um, to become equal. And we've given but you all. We gave you affirmative action. You should be happy, right? We gave you affirmative action. We ended slavery. We have the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You know, we Oprah have all. Winfrey's a billionaire. So you're, you're yeah, right. That. Exactly. Oh, Barack, Barack Obama, Obama was president. president. Was president. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So what more do you want? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Leave me yeah. Alone, right? yeah. Yeah. So I think I think that that's I think that that is um, is one thing that we really have to um, that we really have to reckon with. Um, I think our um, organizations. Um, you know, I was. I, debating uh, or sparring, I guess, with somebody online uh, who actually does this work. And somebody wrote an article recently that said um, diversity education, diversity training should be voluntary. And I, we jumped all over that and said, no, it should be mandatory. So he said, well, if it's mandatory, that what I'm afraid of is that people think that we're trying to fix them. I said, well, I don't know about fix them, but educate them because people are saying I wasn't aware. I didn't know. And so how are you going to know? No. So if you're in an organization that says we value diversity and inclusion, you've got it all over your, your website, you've got it all over your newsletters or what, you know, whatever else. And if you say you value it, how do other people value it if they don't know how to do that? And what, this is what people are saying. They're saying, I didn't know. And I don't know. I don't know how to do this. And so organizations need to make the, uh, so, so that's, another, um, that's another recommendation that the learning and the education, and it has to be uh, about the history initially because we don't know the history because the history has been left out of the history books, the accurate history, right? It's really important, I think, you know, to, um, you know, to, to do that. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk um, today about, you know, defunding police departments. I, I don't know about defunding them. You know, when people hear that word, it's such a negative word. I mean, I think, you know, perhaps redistribution of some resources. Smarter um, use of the money, huh? Say, say it again. Smarter use of the money. Smarter use, you know, sm smarter use of the money. 
I mean, I think we, we do um, have to recognize that if they're there to serve and protect, are they really serving you know, and, and protecting? But I also think we have to make very immediate and specific, uh, take specific actions when police do wrong. I am not anti-police. I am absolutely not, and I don't think most people are. But what we are is anti-police who kill unarmed, innocent Black people. They shoot them in the back eight times. They put the knee on, the, on their um, neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And those people need to immediately be dealt with in a way that, that is just. The fact that Breonna Taylor's um, murderers have not been charged after all of these months, that's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, and those are the kinds of things that cre- can create the tension and keep the tension keep going, can, can, can you continue keeping the tension continuing going because we're not seeing justice. Yeah, I think the case of, um, even the case of Tamir Wright, where the policeman who shot him had already been thrown off of a previous police force for bad behavior, and he shoots his child in a public park within two seconds of getting out of an automobile. And that's supposed to be justice? Yes, yes. And so those are the kinds of things that, um, you know, that, that are just not acceptable, that are atrocious, that are killing Black people, um, not only killing us literally, but killing our spirits. Uh, with Brianna Taylor, I watched a documentary recently on Brianna Taylor, which said her mother wasn't even allowed to, that nothing happened for, she, she laid in her apartment for at least 12 to 14 hours, and nobody did anything to help her. Nobody even tried to revive her. And she laid there until the next day, because this happened, I guess, what, one, two o'clock in the morning, and it wasn't until 11 or 12 the next day that her, her body was removed. I mean, that's inhumane. And this is why we, we say that Black people are not seen as human. Yeah, you know, I think about the uh, sister of Tamir Wright, who was in the park with him, the trauma of, for her. Right. And when the people tra- ask me about do Black Lives Matter, I say, well, what do you think about Tamir Wright's sister? Do you think their life matters? Do you think their heart matters? Yeah. And um, um, uh, Jacob, um, Jacob Blake, oh, um, uh, his three children were um, in the car when he was shot eight times. The trauma that they are going to experience for the rest of their lives. Right, right. You know, you mentioned also, uh, I guess it was Georgetown and some universities of even the Catholic Church, I think, to some degree, has realized that they survived or, or, or financially benefited by slavery. You, you talk about that as a form of reparations as well. You want to touch on that? Yeah, yeah. So, so thank you for uh, reminding me because there are different forms of reparation. It's not, it's not just, um, you know, outright uh, payments to black people, <clears throat> but I think it also could be in the form of like the Georgetowns and the Princetons of the, of you know, the world who who say, gee. Let's um, give tuition free. You know, let's provide scholarships. Um, it's, it's an acknowledgement and it's a recognition. You know, financial services um, industries are beginning to, to think about it and look at how 
they have um, perpetuated um, racist practices, you know, with redlining and, you know, and, and other things. And how can we make amends? It's not going to change the um, autocracies, but it, it can at least say we are acknowledging these wrongs and we're trying to make them right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also mentioned uh, some, some corporations. I know in, for example, in Germany that, uh, you know, they look back at the, at the companies, including Deutsche Bank, that were involved in financing Hitler and, uh, you know, Volkswagen and they're trying to do these kinds of things. And I, I don't know if there's a case of an American corporation that's ever stood up and said, hey, you know, I know you have a bit, bit of research in the back of the book about, you know, 10 companies that, you know, you guys right there, you know, uh, but what do you really think about that in terms of, you know, corporations really stepping up and, and confessing and, and doing some yeah, work? I, yeah, I, I think that they, they absolutely should. And I think that they will. I mean, I think that um, you know, we're, we're seeing, matter of fact, I just was working on a proposal for a financial institution and part of the training that they want for their executives is to understand how financial Institutions have been complicit, and not only complicit, but have contributed to um, race, racism and, and racist practices. And so I think that they were, were, will begin to do that. Um, we've been talking to a tobacco company, and um, they're looking at ways to uh, begin to um, develop products that are, that are less harmful and to stop the dis disparate advertising uh, in black and brown communities that, that they do. Um, liquor companies, I think many of them are now looking at ways that they contribute to um, the outcomes that we see. But I think that's part of it. I, I really do. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about, about the food companies. I was in a discussion with some people recently. There is a uh, young African-American hip-hop artist who's now advertising a meal at McDonald's. I don't know if you've seen the commercial. And the meal consists of a hamburger with cheese, bacon, you know, and then the fries and then a Sprite, right? And I thought, I don't know what the fat content or health content is in this meal, right? But, you know, in, in a sense, it reminded me of how, you, you know, we can get so caught up in the system that we lose track of, is what we're doing healthy for our own communities? It almost reminded me of the sort of post-traumatic slave syndrome in, in terms of how we're not, we're not really seeing what's going on to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it, being such a capitalistic um, society, it's all, about the, it's all about the almighty dollar, right? It's all, about, it's all about making money and how can we make money. But I think more and more, you know, organizations are, you know, moving towards being socially conscious. And I think this, uh, new, this uh, generation that's coming up, the Gen, Gen Zs, the youngest uh, generation, they're requiring that um, companies be more, uh, socially responsive uh, in a lot of different ways, you know, relative to the environment, uh, uh, you know, racial justice. And so I think that we're going to see companies needing to really take a look at, um, you know, capitalism uh, and social justice, you know, because there are ways to uh, make money while still being uh, socially uh, conscious. And there are some companies um, that have done that have done so a company, and I, I don't remember the name of it, I'm sorry, but it's a supermarket that, because supermarkets don't, big the big chains uh, don't locate in Black communities. And so, you know, we call them food deserts, right? But there's a, a supermarket that is, is doing so um, and is finding that they can certainly be profitable. 
Um, there are others that um, some of the smaller, um, like the family dollars that are in black communities are now offering fruit, uh, fresh fruit. And so they're becoming more uh, awake about uh, what they need to do to be more socially conscious and to, to discontinue harming black people and actually helping from the perspective of their um, perspective of, of health and, you know, healthy food. So I think are, you know, they're, they're being illuminated now. They're being highlighted. They're being put, they're being put on the spotlight and you can no longer just think about um, making money without thinking about the impact that that has on people. So uh, one, one question we have here is, uh, what is your hope for, for the book and for this idea of sort of getting into the, the conversation and the debate? What's, what's your hope for it? Yeah, I, I hope that um, Black people will, um, will read the book and be affirmed and also perhaps learn um, how uh, what they're feeling um, is valid um, and the impact that it's you know having on their health, making that correlation. Because I don't think we often make the correlation between racism and I have a headache, or you know, racism and I feel depressed, um, because we've been taught really not to you know not to do that. Uh, don't play the race card. So I hope that that's uh, affirming and it will spark you know conversations and lead to uh, more um, resources um, and more um, effort being put to being more healthy. And I think for white people, I am hoping that this book, all in one place, will share the history and the reason why Black people are protesting, the reason for the fatigue, and what their role is in it to ameliorate it. Like you said earlier, like James Baldwin said, I don't know if we really explored that, that it really is white people's responsibility and, and, and accountability to dismantle racism. Um, it's not, Black people are not a problem to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've met, I mean, in fact, you know, obviously, Vanna Barrett Kohler, um, person there, the, the publisher, that you, re, you, you run into a lot of people who have their heart in the right place, white people, all kinds of people, really want to work together. And I think I see a lot in the Bay Area, and even some of the sort of, um, uh, quite privileged discussion, I think it's about getting people to, to sit down and, and work together, right? So, you know, I think maybe we can have you end on encouraging us to, to right. do that. We yes. don't have to be, yes. you know, on, on opposite ends of the fence here all the time. Yeah, and I, I think, though, I think it's, it's beyond the conversation. I think we can get to the conversation, and absolutely, there are many, 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 and probably the majority you know, of white people who really are concerned about systemic racism and really want to do something about it. However, oftentimes when you're in the system, you cannot see the system. And so I think it is um, really being able to see that system and then take action. Because as Ibram X. Kendi says, there's a difference between a non-racist and an anti-racist. And so an anti-racist is one who takes action. And there are organizations. There's the Surge organization um, that um, white people. It, it's social justice that, that's you know spearheaded by white people. But when I talked with one of the one of the developers of that, the organizers of that, founders of that, that's the word I'm looking for, he said, well, you know, we kind of want to want to be in the background and let um, black people you know take the lead. We don't we don't want to be um, seen as the again you know the, the white savior. 
And so we're doing things, you know, in the background. So I know that there are a lot of white people who are fighting and advocating for social justice. We see that in the, in the demonstrations, in the protests. Many of those protests, when you look out there, look at the protests, sometimes you see even more white people than you do um, black people. So yes, there are a lot of white people who are really in it, really in the movement, and really do want to see change and really do want to see, um, want to see uh, equity. So I think we just have to keep at it. We just have to you know, keep the resources like my, my book, Black Fatigue, and other resources that are out there. And I think we have to just really focus on the systems as well, because I think that's where we've neglected. We focused on the, the interpersonal because some of the dialogue groups and whatnot, that gets to the interpersonal, but we, it doesn't always get to the system. So I would just encourage everybody who is listening and who really wants to do something uh, to look at systems. And if you want to start with one system, start with the voter suppression. You want to start with another system, go to the criminal justice system. So there are all sorts of ways in which we can um, and is which we can get at systems. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Listen, thank you so much, Dr. Winters, for your valuable insights today. You did a fantastic job. You gave us a lot to think about. Uh, and again, I would encourage people sort of to get the book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's really well researched, really well put together. Uh, once again, uh, on behalf of the club, I would like to thank the Sharon Zuckerberg Initiative for their support uh, and, and, and providing for this program and for the digital communications uh, of the Commonwealth Club. Uh, at this time, this program is concluded, and thank you very much, and hope to see you in California when you get out of here at some point when we're traveling again.